0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. We'll be back with brand new episodes in the new year. But today I wanted to revisit our series, The Political Editors, where I spoke to Times journalists who, between them, had had a ring-sized seat at some of the biggest events of the last half century. There are seven episodes, all available again from today. And in this first episode, it's Fred Emery, who started writing for The Times in the 1970s.
2: I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring
1: harmony.
0: It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken, has it not? This is a decisive moment for the world
2: economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way.
0: Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth and growth. Some
1: mistakes were made. Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for The Times. This is The Political Editors. On episode one, Fred Emery uncovering Vietnam, Watergate, and becoming political editor for the fall of Callaghan and the rise of Thatcher from 1977.
2: For the unions to have done that, you know, not to be able to bury the dead properly and all those things the refuse not being collected within the winter of discontent. Callaghan had, I won't say deceived many of the correspondents, but certainly his press people excited us all to think that there was going to be an election the previous autumn. I came back to the possibility that Margaret Thatcher would become the next prime minister. The first interview I did with her, I wanted to tape record it. No tape recorders, Fred, she said.
1: Fred, let's start right at the beginning. How did you get into journalism? It was very different from today's
2: business of qualifying and starting at provincial newspapers and all that sort of stuff. It was sort of done on the old boy network, you know. I was introduced to one of the editors at the times and then went through four more without them paying my expenses for coming down. I was almost broke at the end of it. <laughs> And then got taken on, on what I chose. In other words, the foreign side. I decided I want to be a foreign correspondent.
1: And they said, Okay, off you go. And yeah.
2: Well not quite. I was a trainee for two and a half years perhaps before I got posted.
1: And where was your first posting?
2: To France, to
1: Paris. Give us a sense of what it was like being a young man in Paris in what the late 50s, early 60s.
2: It was a hell of a good time to be there because the Goalists were on a high. They controlled uh, the parliament and also the government. Uh, and de Gaulle was increasingly, if you like, not authoritarian as such, but very much determining what happened until he came a cropper in the late 60s. So it was a high time. And of course, it included tremendous events for us in Britain, like his famous non to joining the common market, as it was then called. And that continued all the time later on after I'd left Paris until Georges Pompidou was president when he agreed.
1: Looking through the the archive, the most striking posting that you had was Vietnam.
2: Well, I was never actually in Vietnam permanently. I managed to persuade the Times that they ought to send somebody else there, not a man with two kids and a wife in Singapore. And when there were big stories, as there were, I was sent in. Biggest one, of course, was the Tet Offensive in 1968.
1: And explain how you went about the business of reporting out of Vietnam. Technology clearly very different to what it is today.
2: There was hardly any technology to speak of. For instance, it was very difficult to phone
1: anything from vietnam because the lines were extremely bad one of the things looking through the archive that i found was this photograph which i think you took of the the saturation bombing on the van co Co dong i
2: was not an official photographer
1: no but the times was
2: always tremendously enthusiastic about taking pictures and i had a reasonable camera it wasn't really a posh camera it's an agfa silet actually but i was quite good at it And obviously there are striking images that you could take in Vietnam and I wasn't a sort of war photographer in that sense. But on this particular helicopter trip, I couldn't refrain from taking that picture, even though we were not, Actually, as correspondents, allowed to take pictures from helicopters or aircraft and so on, because the Americans allowed us a lot of leeway, but they not that much. So they were rather annoyed when that picture was published.
1: Yeah, on no, it, record, so you can sort of see the river running sort of from the top left to the bottom right, and then, like you said, all the craters reveal the extent of the of the bombing along the Va- uh, Van Kodong River. How long would it take then for, from the moment you took that picture to it then appear? So it disappeared in the Times on uh, what Thursday, March the thirteenth, nineteen sixty nine. These days, it would be, you know, minutes before it was back on the picture desk. But yes. presumably it would take some time before all that happened. Well, the Times didn't
2: want me to try to send photos electronically. Yes. You could do, if you were lucky, through the post office system to Hong Kong and then onwards to London. Yeah. No, no, I used to send them by mail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get them developed or not. But I certainly sent a reel in with it and a, a list of what the
1: photos were. And they very happily published it. So what, that was 1969. Yeah. And then another posting, this time slightly less war-torn, but no less dramatic. You were dispatched to Washington. That's right.
2: So yes. It was, it was 1970. Yeah. And the editor, who yeah. was then, by then, William Rees-Mogg, he very much wanted me to start immediately covering the congressional elections because the Republicans were hoping for gains so that Nixon would also have the Congress and the White House. Yeah. Right? Because that was not common at the time. The Democrats really managed to control Congress.
1: Which makes it hard to get anything done if you uh, haven't uh, got that. now see, yeah, yeah, yes. yes.
2: It was obviously a tremendous privilege to be sent to Washington. So young, really. I mean, I remember Charles Wheeler then of the BBC saying to me, you're only 38. What have you got behind you coming to Washington? I said, listen, <laughs> I know nothing about
1: America. Um, it's on-the-job training. Let's talk about Watergate, then. It's clearly the biggest thing that happened in your time there. Yes. With hindsight, obviously it looks massive. You know, ultimately brought down a president, but... Everyone has ever covered one of these scandals or follows them. It's quite often difficult to work out when the first rumblings of a scandal come along. Is this one that's going to go somewhere or is this going to run out of steam? At what point did you think this is the real deal? This is something that could really change American politics? When Watergate happened, everybody very
2: quickly knew that it stank. But the Democrats had a very weak candidate, George McGovern, against Nixon, and let me remind you that Nixon went on that same year of Watergate to win the biggest landslide election in American history. Thanks for making our last campaign the very best one of all. Quite extraordinary. Nobody covered Watergate except the Washington Post. The rest of us did nothing. I didn't do anything. My, my assistant at the Times, Ian McDonald, he was one of the few that covered a congressional committee that was trying to cover... The money trail, as Deep Throat famously said.
1: Was there a feeling amongst some journalists in Washington at the time? Oh, are they still banging on about that at the Washington Post?
2: Yes, I think it's very clear in in the books that were later written that Mm. the senior journalists at the Washington Post thought this was going nowhere and that Ben Bradley, the editor, was vastly giving it too much effort and space and so on. But, of course, they were wrong, as it turned (laughs) out. For me... The breakthrough came when one of the people who'd been convicted in the Watergate trial, and don't forget the judge in that first trial, threatened all of them with heavy sentences if they didn't go away and think about what they'd been saying because he came up and said there's been perjury in this trial, others are involved. He wrote a letter to the judge. That letter, for me, I was in London actually when it came out. So I seeing the editor, he said this'll all blow over, won't it? That was Reese Mogg. Yeah. It's a bit like a hurricane comes and goes. Yeah, yeah. I said, I don't think so, sir. I think actually this is gonna be
1: bad news. And of course it was. you also talked before about how was, I think it was an acting head of FBI told William Reese Mogg, the editor of the Times. With them in my presence. And you were there and it had legs, but you weren't allowed to report it. That's right. Reese Mogg came on a visit in the
2: spring of seventy three when it was all blowing apart, right? And I'd fixed up for him an appointment with the a man who had only been in the FBI for a short time. William Ruckelshaus was his name. We went to see him in his office, in J. Edgar Hoover's office. He had his feet up on the desk, watching television. And when we got in, he very politely turned the television off and started briefing Rees Mock. William's position at that time was that there was a lynch mob in Washington after Nixon and it was going nowhere and we shouldn't really give it that much attention and I was trying to persuade him otherwise that it was much more serious than that. So we asked, got to the end of this briefing with Ruckelshaus when he said to the effect that I cannot exclude a criminal proceeding against the president. Wow, <laughs> I mean, was amazing. That was in the spring of 73. Remember, Nixon wasn't almost impeached until the summer of 80, uh, 74, so he was a year ahead of it. Well, I could hardly contain myself. We got outside and I said to William rees I mean, that's fantastic stuff. Yeah. He said, of course you won't publish it. I said, what? <laughs> I said, this is probably the biggest scoop we're ever going to get on this story. The Americans yeah. are not even onto that. You know. Yeah. He said, we won't publish it.
1: And why was so that? I, because... He was there as on a background, off-the-record briefing. Was it because he didn't trust the guy he was meeting? What was behind that? He thought the whole thing was a politically got-up you know, conspiracy
2: by the Democrats against Nixon, that they were jealous of the things he was doing, he'd he'd won this fantastic election victory, and he thought it was just terribly partisan. He got persuaded out of that, I have to say. He was honourable about it, unlike the the
1: Figaro newspaper, which stayed in the ditch with Nixon right to the end. And then, as time went on, and clearly the case mounted against Nixon, you got another scoop by finding out that he was resigning before everyone else. Yes. <laughs> that was good That was good luck. That was a, a youngish man then.
2: He was working at the White House and I'd met him through the Oxford and Cambridge dinner. He'd been to Oxford in his time, right? So I was on sort of telephone terms with him. It was not easy to get through to decent people at the White House in those days. I mean, you had to go through the press office yeah. and if they wouldn't answer anything, you couldn't get anywhere. So I had this guy's number and... Everybody was desperate to know if Nixon was going to go that week, which day would it be, and so on. And he very quietly said, there are removals vans in Executive Drive, which is the road between the White House and the Executive Office building. It was terribly important for me to know that, not just as a scoop, but because the Times was going to publish a special edition on Nixon's departure, right, which we'd all written articles for and everything. So he was desperate to know. We didn't want to go a day late, obviously. Yeah. So I told them that. The print effort of yeah. that supplement was running before Nixon had actually resigned.
1: Because you knew the removal sounds for that. Yeah. It's incredible. And Absolutely it came, extraordinary.
2: His, his um, resignation came in, in the speech that night. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the
1: Congress to justify continuing This is The Political Editors, episode one with Fred Emery. Coming up, reporting on the fall of Callaghan and the rise of Thatcher and how politics has changed since the 80s.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You find yourself in America, this extraordinary period of American political history—the downfall of a president. It doesn't get much more exciting than that. And then you come back to British politics in the late 70s to cover what actually ended up being a pretty exciting time politically as well and the teetering of, a, of the Callaghan government, the arrival of Margaret Thatcher. How did it compare entering the lobby the, West, the way that Westminster politics is covered? It was
2: very different. I mean, you know, in the beginning, I have to confess, I was out of my depth. I'd been a foreign correspondent for nearly 20 years. It was like coming back to be a foreign correspondent in one's own country. And the way the lobby worked at Westminster, you know, everything was on background, nothing was attributable and so on, was difficult because you could persuade people in America, if they were speaking to you on background, saying, well, this is f- so fantastic, important, I must be able to publish it in some way. And they would often agree. It's a very different, different climate yeah. over there, right? Even for foreign journalists. I found it difficult, quite honestly. But I succeeded... Uh, David Wood, who was very eminent a uh, political editor, uh, and I succeeded also in keeping his assistant, George Clark, who was a wonderful colleague, tremendously supportive, taught me a vast amount. And his only, if you like, his only drawback in the editor's uh, view was that he had such good shorthand that he used to file his entire notebook <laughs> over the phone and leave it to the subs to sort out. <laughs> and they said, Fred, you've got to stop him. You can't just let him keep filing like this. But he was a terrific help. And we had some, not dust-ups between us, we had some dust-ups with the politicians over things that he would get at uh, Westminster from committees and so on, which committee chairmen like Joel Barnett, for instance, were furious and threatened to cut us off and not have our press passes withdrawn <laughs> and so on. But more, I mean, those are m- minor things. The, the important thing was I came back to the possibility that Margaret Thatcher would become... The Next prime minister. It didn't seem like that immediately. She had had this surprising victory over Ted Heath in the leadership contest. I then covered her trip to America. I was in America when she came and so on. So I got to know her and her husband, Dennis, quite well at that time. She was always difficult, you know, with journalists. The first interview I did with her, I wanted to tape record it to make sure I really got it down perfectly. No tape recorders, Fred, she said. So, you know, I had no shorthand. I have to admit it, if we'd had George Clark there, we'd have had word by word. So right? how, did you, how did you cope? Well, I with just no cope sure the best to, I could. With no tape recorder. Memory, notes, you could take notes with her. Yeah. When she did become the leader of the opposition, as she was when I came back to London, uh, I went to see her in her room at the Commons and so on. And it's very much like today. She was obsessed with the cost of living crisis. And she wanted to tell me how many of her friends couldn't keep their central heating on because they couldn't afford the cost of uh, heating it, right? And I couldn't believe it. I'd come back from American politics and here was the next potential prime minister telling me about her friends not able to heat their houses. It didn't seem feasible, but of course it was true. So I was thrust into the middle of that. The issue of the Callaghan government attempting to force a pay deal, a pay policy on the recalcitrant unions brought that government down, essentially. We had the winter of discontent, the failed referendum in Scotland and then her victory. It wasn't a colossal victory in 79, but it was a clear, clear clear-cut victory. I know full well the responsibilities that await me as I enter the door of number 10, and I'll strive unceasingly to try to fulfil the trust and confidence that the
0: British people have placed in me and the things in which I believe.
1: And presumably... Lots of late nights for you, all those crunch votes, the the government's majority whittling away, the, the sick and dying being brought in to vote.
2: Absolutely. Fortunately, I was not the parliamentary <laughs> correspondent. They always had to sit there... Uh, the the guys who were taking the yeah. notes and also the parliamentary correspondent who was doing the basic sketch yeah. of that day. Um, they had a terrible time sitting up to all hours. I could at least sort of stay till midnight and, go, <laughs> and start again for the next day. But you're quite right, it was a, an amazing time. Between uh, 76, 77, the agreement with the Liberals, it was called a LibLab Lab Pact, if you remember, and um, that kept the, co- the government alive until the Scott Nats deserted over the Scottish referendum, voted in the confidence vote, and that's Callaghan lost. Callaghan, you know, had, I won't say deceived many of the correspondents, but certainly his press people excited us all to think that there was going to be an election the previous autumn. And in fact, we wrote about it. It was coming, and it wasn't. He decided not to. If he'd gone, he might have won then.
1: There's, a, there's an interesting parallel there for younger listeners to the sort of 2007 and Gordon Brown and the. It's very identical. The newish Prime Minister. Everyone's been sort of marched up to the top of the hill. There's going to be a general election. And then the very act of not calling one hammered Gordon Brown in the polls and the public's perception. The same was true of Callaghan in, yes. in, in 78, autumn of 78, when he could have gone. And actually, you know, like you said he may well have won. Might have won, yes. And what was he like to deal with? Clearly Margaret Thatcher knew that she had to get the political editor of the Times in for cups of tea and so on. Did, did, <laughs> did Callaghan do that with you, with you as well? Uh, I went to lunch at Downing Street once
2: that wasn't to get particularly close to Callaghan. It was a kind of official lunch in which we got invited as a kind of grace and favour, you know. He was affable, but he was very tight-lipped, you know. He never gave anything away. And when I was later in television, it was very difficult to get him to come and do an interview unless you could promise him live. Then you couldn't cut him up, you see. (laughs) Interesting. And I think we only managed it once after he had resigned.
1: And during (coughs) that period, clearly Margaret Thatcher went through quite a transformation if you look at some of her early interviews and so on where everything from the way she carried herself, the clothes she wore, even her voice changed yes, a right. lot. And, you know, the introduction of Saatchi and Saatchi to the political advertising, you know, much more hard hitting adverts, party political broadcasts. Did it feel like politics was changing in that period in the run-up to the seventy-nine election? I think it did. Partly, of course, that the... <laughs>
2: Labour's defeat was Labour's own doing, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, the unions doing that to their own government was to to Jim Callaghan and Dennis Healy, really implausible and inexcusable. It's okay for them to do that kind of thing to a conservative government, in their view. But for the unions to have done that, you know, not to be able to bury the dead properly and all those things the refuse not being collected within the winter of discontent, the conservatives really exploited that to the full. Obviously, television and advertising was becoming much sharper in that period and went on to become even more so.
1: And obviously, it was unusual for Margaret Thatcher even to be a woman in politics, now for mine, a party leader. How much did that play into politics at the time? Was it sort of discussed an awful lot that she was first woman leader, first potential female prime minister?
2: It was. Uh, I don't think it was discussed so much openly, as it would have been, say, in the Me Too movement and all that sort of area, you know. But, I mean, the fact that she was the first woman leader of the party and likely to be the first woman prime minister was obviously seen as something that was incredibly significant, but might not happen. You know, there were lots of people around who were always suggesting that maybe she wouldn't really make it in the end because people wouldn't vote for a woman. But I think she showed her mettle early on in the clashes with Callahan and so on. And of course, what saved her in the end was the Falklands crisis, as everybody knows. I mean, she came through as a leader then when she was thinking she might never go back to Downing Street if she didn't recover the Falklands.
0: Just rejoice
2: at that news and congratulate our forces and the Marines. Good night, gentlemen. Looking through
1: some of your your reporting during that period, a couple of things that leapt out, it's sort of an interesting reminder of how politics waxes and wanes and everyone, you know, now it's very easy to think, well, Margaret Thatcher became leader of the opposition and then she became Prime Minister, that was the obvious thing that was going to happen. The other extraordinary story I found was that November 1980, Tory party conference, protester, left-wing protester jumps up at the Tory party conference and a group of people knock him out, unconscious, and you end up reporting on on that from the, the floor of the conference. And I suppose, again, it's just a reminder that nothing's new. In fact, these days, it'd be probably a bigger deal. From what I could tell from the reporting at the time of the archive, nothing really happened to the people responsible for, for knocking this, this no, chap out. you're quite right. I'm shocked by it.
2: Others thought, well, they're protesting and they're not supposed to be here. Chuck them out anyway. I said, yeah, but there are ways of dealing with it. You don't actually have to beat them up. Nothing happened to those people. Either they were ushers or some were actually Tory party members who just jumped in. And uh, it reminds you actually of what tends to happen at Trump rallies in America at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah. That sort of thing. Trump actually encourages the crowd
1: to beat people up. And that's shocking too. And then you left The Times. To go into television, uh, you were on Panorama and so on as well. I just wonder what you preferred, having wanted to go into broadcast to start with. Your brief two decades in uh, in print journalism, then television. Which did you prefer? I'd
2: obviously never imagined that I would have two careers, and there's a tremendous, as you as you well know, tremendous difference between going from long form journalism at the Times to being on panorama even reporting the whole of panorama yourself it would sort of make up about you know two columns in the times <laughs> half a page yeah you write so the the difference in writing between paper journalism and, and broadcasting was actually a huge shock it is very different and i had a wonderful television career i mean if you look over the people i met and interviewed over that time heads of government and heads of state and so on i mean it was fantastic the access Both the Times access while I was working for the Times and BBC access to politicians was fantastic. Probably less now.
1: I was wondering actually whether being political editor of the Times opened more doors or being the man from the BBC.
2: Well, in my time on the Times up to 1980, certainly being on the Times was tremendous. Certainly wherever you went in East Asia, Cambodia or anything, the Times had... An extra notch up from anybody else.
1: Looking back now, is there anyone that you'd like to have interviewed that you didn't? (laughs) Um, I never
2: actually interviewed Nixon uh, when he was president. I did interview him for Panorama uh, about four years afterwards. I would like to have interviewed him when he was in power, but he hated being interviewed, so it would have been a challenge. Anybody else? Yes, I would like to have interviewed De Gaulle. But again... He had one person in the British press he would talk to and that was the head of Reuters in Paris because he'd known him during the World War Two when that chap covered the free French. but <laughs> nobody else got a look in. So yes, I would have
1: liked to have interviewed De Gaulle. Everyone sort of looks through these things with rose-tinted spectacles, that, that politics isn't as good as it used to be. Our politicians are not as good as they used to be. You were there, you saw those politicians there up close. Is that right, that politics isn't like it used to be? given what we've just been through yeah. in this country, I think politics has been v- pretty amazing yeah. actually. I have perhaps
2: an order view. I found throughout most of my career that the majority of politicians were not just doing it for themselves. They were really believing in the public good or trying to and trying to do their best. Now we know that there have been terrible scandals like the expenses scandal of the House of Commons. That was partly encouraged by fellow MPs saying we're not getting enough money so go and boost your expenses you know wasn't that great a scandal even though it seemed so at the time but the character of politicians i think has changed a bit i'm not going to single out people at the present time but you know there's been too much lack of integrity
1: everywhere and that is going to show up i think in the next election well fred it's been fascinating speaking to you fred emery times political from 1977 to 1981 thanks for joining us on time ready That was Fred Emery, political editor of The Times from 1977 to 1981. In the next episode of The Political Editors, we'll hear from Julian Havilland, who took over from Fred in the early 80s and knew every Prime Minister from Alec Douglas Hume. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.